came, I came across an interesting video. Uh, in this video, two girls, probably in their 20s, they were randomly asking people in the mall um, the question, who is Jesus? And I'll share with you some of the responses to that question. One lady replied, uh, I guess he's some man. Then she proceeded on to say, I guess it's up for interpretation because there's a whole lot of different Jesus out there. Another young lady replied, Jesus is really my biggest inspiration. I didn't have money or people to look up to, so I kind of just stuck on to him. And then uh, two girls were asked. One girl replied, uh, Jesus is the only begotten son of God who was sent down to earth to spread the word of him. And her other friend re responded, um, well, Jesus is me. You know, I think I'm just like that. <clears throat> Trey, what, what, about, what about the church you may be wondering? Well, Ligonier has done a survey of churches in the United States. They surveyed 3,011 people. And they asked them if they agreed or disagreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And here are the, uh, the recorded statistics. 40% strongly agree with that statement. 15% somewhat agree with that statement. Doesn't make sense, but back to statistics. 13% were, they weren't sure at all. And 32% strongly disagree with the statement. So I'm being generous because either you agree or you disagree with that statement, right? But for the sake of the statistics, 55% of church members agree and 45% of church members disagree with the statement that Jesus is God. So my question for you today is, who is Jesus? I've titled today's sermon, Our Preeminent Savior. And instead of us thinking through that question on our own, right, with our own worldly wisdom, we'll look to God's word. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to preach from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And before we jump right in, let's look at the, the relevant historical and immediate context to kind of put this in place. Well, first, of course, Paul is the author. In verse 1, Paul and the Apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the prison epistles. Along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, they were all written by Paul while he served his first Roman imprisonment. Back in Acts 28, verse 16, we read, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guards. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Acts 28 records when Paul finally arrives to Rome. He spent two years there on house arrest. Paul was originally arrested because of him radically spreading the gospel. Some Jews saw him in the temple, and they lost him. Back in Acts chapter 21. God providentially led Paul to Rome while pretty much being in prison the whole time. If you are studying God's word and you know are confused sometimes with regard to the timelines, um, there's a very helpful website called BlueLetterBible.com. It can be very helpful given kind of timelines and whatnot. But most commentators will date the book around 60 AD, give or take. And just keep in mind that Paul hadn't yet been to this church in person, but most likely was filled in about the status of the church from uh, Epaphras, which we'll kind of see him in the morning. So Paul starts to let off with his, his standard greeting, right? 
Paul commends them on their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. You see that in verse 4. Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all of the saints. Paul also commends Epaphras for being a faithful minister. Epaphras was, uh, he most likely found the church. You kind of see that in verse 7. Paul calls him their faithful minister. And in verse 8, Epaphras was one of the, probably the one who told Paul about the condition of the Colossian church. And kind of all the things that were going on. Then Paul tells the Colossians that he, he prays that they may be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, now if you haven't already, would you please open up to the book of Colossians? Just let me know when you get there by responding. Amen. 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 This is the reading of God's word. He is, the he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him were the things on earth, all things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in his body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away, from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just uh, come to you right now to ask you to uh, open our minds. Heavenly Father, may we not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. May we just see in your word of who you are. May we walk away from this sermon with knowing who Jesus Christ is. That he's preeminent. May you be glorified through this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we'll have two points. Point one, Jesus is preeminent. You see that in verses 15 to 19. And point two, Jesus is our Savior. You see that in verses 20 through 23. Point one, Jesus is preeminent. Preeminent means um, to surpass all others. Or you can say it means of first importance. And while it may not be clear, verses 15 through 23, Jesus is specifically referring to Jesus. Rather, Paul is specifically referring to Jesus. Every time we see he, him, or his, Paul is talking about Jesus. And we know this because context is king. I think we'll buy a shirt that says context is king. I saw somebody on the social media wearing that shirt. But, um, you know, so I don't have the concept repeated, but look, look back up to verse 12. Paul says, I'm kind of reading down, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father, 
who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, he, Paul's still talking about the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul shifts focus from God the Father to God the Son, whom we have redemption through his blood. And while we know context is king, Paul in verse 15 continues to speak about Jesus. He, that is Jesus, is the invisible image of God, the firstborn over all creation. You're probably familiar with uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26 27, where scripture says God created man in his image. God made us with unique attributes that all the other creatures didn't have. But even then, there are incommunicable attributes that God didn't give us the, the ability to have. And we sin, so that marred the image. But we are still made in God's image. But we aren't the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God, meaning that Jesus is the representation of God in the flesh. Jesus lived the perfect life without sin. He obeyed every law. And not only that, Jesus is God. In the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1, John says that the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. His name is Jesus. In the person of Jesus, he was fully God and fully man. Kind of a great illustration is uh, in Matthew 22, where the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus into telling them not to pay taxes. And Jesus tells them to bring him a coin. And when he's given this coin in verse 20, Jesus says, whose image and inscription is this? And of course, on the coin was Caesar. That coin represented Caesar. Well, in the same way, Jesus represents God. He made what was invisible, visible. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says about God, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But Jesus, in John 14, verse 8 and 9, responds to Philip when he made the statement, show us the Father. Jesus responds, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the idea here is that Jesus and the Father are of the same essence. Both God are being separate persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one in essence and three in persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at, the rest of, look at the rest of verse 15. And he, again, Jesus, is the firstborn over all creation. You know, there was a, a Jehovah's Witnesses in the room. They say, hey. I say, hold up. Pump your brakes. Slow down. Paul doesn't just say that he's the firstborn, right? But he goes on to say the firstborn over all creation. That's important to remember, right? Remember what we said earlier? Context is king. You know, look to your neighbor and say, context is king. So we can kind of interact with one another. Amen? Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, the term firstborn didn't always literally refer to an individual who was the oldest. Right? In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Paul, God, told Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, God isn't speaking to one person, but an entire nation. 
all God's people who were enslaved by the Egyptians, God calls them my firstborn sons. Now, of course, there were plenty of people here before the Israelites were being enslaved. The meaning behind God calling Israel his firstborn is referring to the privileges and the inheritance that were normally given to the firstborn son. I believe Paul has it in mind when he called Jesus the firstborn over all creation. Paul, speaking to Jesus being preeminent, having a higher rank over all creation. Also speaking to Jesus having, having authority over all creation. Paul in verses 16 to 19, he explains how Jesus exercises his authority over all creation. We'll see how Jesus exercises authority over heaven, the earth, and the church. Paul tells us in verse 15 that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Why? Because Jesus created all things. <laughs> Now, growing up, whenever I heard the word all, for some reason it didn't resonate as all. I don't know, maybe just me, right? But whenever I heard the word airy, not every, but airy, my slang, I knew that that meant all. So, excuse my slang, but Jesus created everything. Everything, right? And yeah, there are plenty of things that were made that man made right, but the idea is that every resource that man needs to build anything, they have to go through what Jesus made. <laughs> this is what John meant when he said, without him was not anything that was made that was made. <laughs> Jesus is the author of creation, Paul tells the Colossians. In Genesis 1, verse 1, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. The second person in the Trinity was present and active in all creation. Go look to your neighbor and say, Jesus created everything. Amen. 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 Sorry for pressing my slang with you guys. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So look at the rest of verse 16. Visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. I believe here when Paul says thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, he's referring to the angelic realm. Another place where Paul kind of mentions the same thing is in the book of Ephesians. Amen, buddy. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Kind of see that how Paul links principalities and powers to heaven, and kind of at the end of that book, chapter six, verse twelve, we see that it could also be referring to demons. But in any event, Paul here is referring to the angelic realm. And and this Colossian church, there were um, false beliefs that were making their way inside the church. We kind of see in the second chapter of uh, Colossians. Paul warns them not to let anyone cheat them out of their reward by worshiping angels. So here in verse 16, he shows the Colossians how Jesus is over the angels because he created them. <laughs> Jesus has authority over the angels and even the demons, right? We see that countless times in the gospel when Jesus commands demons to either be quiet or to leave that person. So Paul was basically saying, why are I worshiping the angels when Jesus created them? 
Jesus created everything on earth and heaven. So he's the only one who deserves worship, right? Worship him. Worship Jesus. But let me ask you, are there any idols in your lives? Yeah, you may not be worshiping angels, right? That's a little bit extreme. But how much time do you spend on your phone? How much time do you spend on social media? Or oh, watching the news, right? Or, kind of something simple, like do you seek man's approval over God's? And some of these things aren't wrong with themselves, but if that takes over 80% of your day, you have a problem. If that's taking up 80% of your day and you only give God 5% or even less than that, that's an issue. If this is you, Paul is telling you the same thing. That Jesus created whatever that you whatever you're idolizing. Repent and give your time to Jesus. I think a good way to repent of idolatry is to always give it a break. You know, delete all the social media apps off your phone for a week. Go a week without watching the news. Stay away from overtime for a month if you work a lot. You know, fasting from food is great. But the idea of fasting is to abstain from something. And that can be anything. Abstaining from something and focusing more on God. You know, whatever distracts you from spending a lot of time with God, it's right to put it in its place under God. Amen? And Paul goes on to say, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Hey, man, I'm going to preach over you, man. <laughs> but did you hear that? Not only did Jesus create all things, but all things were created for him. Listen to this quote from John Piper. Super short. But all things exist for Christ. They exist to make his glory known. And I couldn't agree with him more. And as Christians, we should have this mindset. You know, a correct view of Christ will comfort you through trials. But the wrong view of Christ will have you on edge through the entire trial. Imagine you're in a trial, right? Let's say your, your car broke down. That's never a good thing, right? Nobody wants their car broke down. And while you're dealing with the car being broke down, you think that it's outside of God's control. So you're just panicking. You, you feel hopeless, right? Now, same trial. But you trust that God is sovereign and that he allowed this trial to happen for a reason. So, you know, instead of freaking out, you stop and think, what area is God trying to strengthen me in? Immediately, that should bring comfort. That God loves you so much that he seeks to strengthen you in areas where you lack faith in him. Trusting that God is sovereign will eliminate the idea that something happened out of God's control. Amen? Amen. 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 <laughs> and back to our text. And he, again, Jesus, is before all things. Paul seeks to make it very clear that Jesus is not a creation. Paul says that Jesus created all things. He made it. <laughs> and all things were made for him and he was before all of these created things Paul couldn't be any more clear and to really drive it home he says that by him by Jesus all things consist 
Or you could say that by Jesus, all things are held together. You know, Jesus didn't create the world just to walk away. He's not like these CEOs who start up companies with the intention to sell them later on. No. But he is constantly holding all things together. Nothing happens unless God allowed it. You know, the sun hasn't crashed into earth right now because Jesus is upholding all things. The author of Hebrews says Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Again, do you see how the right view of Jesus brings comfort, brothers and sisters? So we, we looked at how Jesus exercises authority over the earth and heaven. Now let's look and see how Jesus is over the church as well. Paul in verse 18 says he is the head of the body, the church. Well, what does that mean, you may be wondering? Well, first, Jesus has supreme authority over the church. Not the Pope, not any dominating pastor who thinks they've run things, but Christ and him alone. All pastors ought to submit to him. Every single Christian ought to submit to him. When issues arrive in the local church, we ought to look to the Lord for guidance. There are a couple of ways that Jesus exercises authority over the church. His word is one way. But we as Christians, we sit while the word is being preached, right? We obey his word when he tells us not to do something. We call that sin. We will only put a member on church discipline if they are in unrepentant sin. Again, we only have the authority from scripture. Another way that Jesus exercises authority uh, through the church is through pastors. Pastors are technically under shepherds, and Christ is the good and perfect shepherd, while he has ordained men to lead and shepherd his church. <clears throat> uh, the New Testament very often uses the word body to describe the, the Christian church. Well, uh, that's because when a person believes in the gospel, that person is joined to Christ in salvation. And then when another person believes in the gospel, that person is also joined. That's why Paul calls all believers brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter your skin color, your interests, your political party. If you are in Christ, we are all brothers and sisters and we are all linked together. And Jesus is over every leader outside of the church as well. And while we are commanded to submit to authority, Jesus is our supreme authority. Anyone who tells you to do something contrary to what he has told you, you can't do it no matter the consequences. And Jesus is the beginning of the church. He is the origin of the church. Paul makes sure not to give any room for misinterpretation of Jesus being the head of the church. The church only exists because of Christ. The church was birthed after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Again, not to mean that he's the first person, but the preeminent one with supreme authority. Amen? <clears throat> Amen. And Paul ends verse 18 with that in all things he may have the preeminence. So that in Jesus he will be first in everything. The church was birthed and he is the head of it. So he will have top rank. He will be first in all things. 
while Jesus always had authority, being the second person in the Trinity, him wrapping himself in flesh, living the perfectly obedient life to the cross, that gave him a name above all names. A name that every knee will bow to. Jesus. And verse 19 reads, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. You know, Colossians, I know Jesus was a man, like us, Paul says, but Jesus is fully man and fully God. And it pleased the Father. Well, what Paul intends to convey to his audience is that the fullness of, of God dwelled in Jesus. It means that Jesus wasn't only man, but he was also God, as we, like we said earlier. Listen to what, what, listen to what one, one commentator had to say. I quote, On the one hand, in relation to deity, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the God he manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers in attributes. I end quote. Paul saying, in Jesus all the fullness dwelled, of course debunked the idea that angels could be worshipped, right? But it also reminded the Colossians that the fullness of God was in Christ. In him alone and nothing else. You know, they could have been maybe thinking in their minds with the, the heresy that was going on that uh, angels were deity in some way. You know, later on in chapter 2, Paul even drives his point a little further. He says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so, you know, so far Paul has answered the question, who is Jesus? Now, my question for you is what's your answer? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your inspiration? Is he a very influential and kind person? Or is he God who is preeminent in all things? You know, Paul showed us give me the room to think anything else. A.W. Towser once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? That was point one. Jesus is preeminent. You know, every morning, me and my family, when we drive to church, I always play um, 105.1. And normally, there's always a sermon on. Lately, at least for the, the past month, a guy by the name of Lon Solomon has always been preaching. You may know who he is, but he used to pastor of McLean Bible Church. And while listening to his sermons, he always has the phrase, a phrase that he uses. And that phrase is, so what? And I don't think he have a problem with me stealing that this one time, so, so what? Trey, you just told me who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. That he created all things, and everything that he created was for him. And that while he was fully man, and simultaneously God, what does that mean for me? Well, here's what that means for you. Jesus is your Savior. Look at verse 20. And by him, to reconcile all things to himself, by him were the things on earth, all things in heaven, having made peace 
through the blood of his cross. By him, again, Jesus, he reconciled all things to himself. To reconcile, it means to restore relationship. I kind of speak more on that in the next verse. But Jesus restored all things to himself through the cross. Jesus, who was God, wrapped himself in flesh. He kept the commandments that you and I couldn't keep. He, he never had ungodly anger. He never faltered unforgiveness. He never looked at anyone with a lustful intent. He lived a life that we should have lived. A life of perfection. A life that we were commanded to live. He followed the law with perfect obedience. And that perfect obedience led him to the cross. It was the only moment in history where a perfectly innocent man was punished. And through him being punished, if you have repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is preeminent, he has made peace for you through his death. He died for our sins. And though your sins are like scarlet saints, they will be white as snow. God punished Jesus in our place. And that by us believing in him, we're made right with God. If you haven't already believed in the Lord Jesus, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Jesus has made peace through the cross. A guy by the name of George Bernard in 1913, he wrote a hymn that we all know and love. It's called The Old Rugged Cross. And don't worry, I won't sing. I'll just read the verse. <laughs> he writes, In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, for twice on that old cross, Jesus suffered and dies to pardon and sanctify me. George Bernard understood the beautiful implications behind that old rugged cross, and I pray you do too. When Paul says, through the blood of the cross, the author of Hebrews kind of clears it up for us a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9, while trying to tell its recipients that Christ's death was necessary. In verse 22, the author writes, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Or no forgiveness of sins. Jesus, being the perfect sinless sacrifice, fulfills the law, dies in our place. The, the difference between Jesus and the Lamb in the Old Testament is that Jesus completely satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied it indefinitely. And there are no need for any other sacrifices. We're only told to offer our bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he has now reconciled. And you, Paul says, so replace that you with your name. Insert your name, right? Paul reminds us that of our previous condition before we were saved. You know, there is no such thing as a person who was born a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian without a past. And he goes on to say, you who were once alienated 
To be alienated means to be estranged or cut off. You see, before Christ, we were all far off because of our sin. Our sin alienated, alienated us from God. God is perfect, and our sin built a chasm between us and God. God's perfection can't accept sin. God hates sin. Now, as Reformed Christians, we most of us hold to the five points of Calvinism. You know, and the, the one point I'm kind of going to hit at was, is the, the doctrine of total depravity. We were all once totally depraved. What that means is that because of Adam's sin, mankind, that is every person born, is born to sin. And to put it more straightforward, we were all once enslaved to sin without the ability to choose God. Yes, people have done good things while in that depraved condition, but any good deed, apart from the right view of God, is tainted. And that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your sins. David in Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You were born into sin. And to kind of fast forward to Paul's life in Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That everyone is sinning, right? And everyone needs a Savior. So Paul here in verse 21 tells the Colossians that they were far from God. They were aloof. And even more than that, they hated God. And while they hated God in that state, Jesus has reconciled them. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Amen, Jimmy. You know, I was once on Instagram scrolling uh, through my feed, and I came across a video that blew my mind. A, a guy was selling snacks, maybe even a fundraiser. I think he was selling cookies, or so whatever it may be. But uh, the guy came to purchase, we're going to call it cookies. And after the guy purchased the cookies, the person who, were, who was selling the cookies told the man that the profit for these cookies goes to stop sex trafficking. Well, the man that purchased the cookie said, I used to be a sex trafficker. But the Lord saved me. And now I'm actively trying to fight against it. Now, I wonder what your response would have been. You know, would you have said, get away from me? Or would you have praised God, who you believe in, for saving a person who was totally depraved, who was enslaved to their sin? And God changed their heart for his glory. You know, every time a sinner repents, angels rejoice. Saints said, angels are rejoicing. Why aren't we? You should too. You should too. Saints, if you conceal your former life in Christ, you are placing a box on God's glory. You are hiding God's glory from saving you and your sin. God wants you to tell others how he saved you for his glory. Now, do you want to glorify God? Well, then tell others what he delivered you from. You know, that's called your testimony. Well, back to verse 22. Paul says that Jesus reconciled them in the body of his flesh through death 
very specific, right? Earlier we saw that Paul mentioned that the Colossians were falling victim to the false teaching of worship managers. While the, the false teachers probably pointed towards Jesus' death as um, kind of just showing, trying to prove that Jesus wasn't God. But Paul shows them the contrary. Paul says that only Jesus' death can reconcile you to God. Not any angel, only Jesus. Paul is speaking of the substitutionary atonement. That, that means that Jesus paid the price for our sin. Our sin required punishment. Romans 6.23 says, For the punishment for sin was death. Jesus took our punishment to reconcile us to God. But that's not it. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus' death reconciles you to God and presents you holy, which means set apart, separated from sin. And brought near to God. You see, not only did Jesus take your sin, but he imputed to you his righteousness. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, he said, For he made him who knew no sin to be our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And to quote the introduction to an old Lecrae song, old Lecrae song, the song was called I'm a Saint. And the song starts off with the preacher, I believe, is speaking. And here's what the song starts off with it says, Inherently, speaking of the word saints, the word means to be holy. We know that we're not holy on our own terms, but Christ's blood makes us holy. So he satisfied the wrath of God. The beef has been crushed. Now we got new identity. Called saints. We are called saints because of what Christ has done. Because of that reconciliation that we saw back in verse 21 and 22. Now, if there was any time to say, won't he do it? <laughs> now would be the time. Amen? Amen. So, Christ presents you holy. That means set apart from sin, brought into God and blameless. That means that you are innocent. And Paul takes it a step further and says that we are above reproach. You know, that means that old accuser, Satan, can no longer accuse you of anything. And in Revelation, he is called the accuser. And through Christ, we are now above reproach. So Satan, or anyone else, can bring a charge to God about you. You know why? Because Jesus died for it. Jesus died for it. Now look at the very last three words of verse 22. In his sight. Isn't that comforting? You know, growing up, I, I wanted nothing more than to be accepted by my parents. But whenever I had an accomplishment, they were the first people I, I kind of sought to get a congratulations. You know, I'm so proud of you. But on the flip side, whenever someone accused me of doing something wrong, the only opinion I cared about in, the, in that matter were my parents. If they said, boy, you about to get beat, I knew I was wrong. If my parents stood up ready to defend me, I knew I was right. I didn't care what anybody else had to say. Well, this is the same way that we should feel. Paul is saying that you are above reproach in Jesus' sight. 
to Jesus, you are innocent, and no charge can be brought to him about you that will revoke your salvation. Every time you sin, Satan goes, there he go again. Oh, there she go again. Look, he just sinned. He just had a lustful thought. And so all those responses again, Jesus says, I paid for it. And verse 23 goes on to say, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, before I say what Paul is saying, let me first tell you what he's not saying. <laughs> Paul is not teaching that one can lose their salvation. What Paul is teaching is that those who continue in the faith are those who are actually saved. The test for true believers is when trials come, when false teachings come, when it becomes difficult to be a Christian in the U.S., will you remain in the faith? Will you hold to the gospel no matter the cost? If you don't, you will never save. And Paul, Paul goes on to say, grounded and steadfast. The believer that continues in the faith is solid. He won't be led astray by false teaching. Because he has truly believed the gospel and he knows that every other belief is false. That person isn't moved away from the hope of the gospel. Kind of similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 7 about the person who hears the word and does them. Hears his word and does them. The Christian who truly believes the gospel is secure. And the one who doesn't truly believe the gospel is like a man who built his house with sand. And when the rain and the flood came, what's it kind of connected directly to what we're talking about? When the trials came, and they will come, I think we can all testify to that, right? <laughs> that person won't be, that person will be blown away. For the person who has truly put their hope in Jesus, they'll be solid and steadfast. John, in this first epistle, in 1 John 2.19, says that they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us to, to, um, that they might be made manifest, that they were not of us. I know this is tough to hear, especially if you had friends or maybe even family members who were regularly attending church at one time, right? Just pray the Lord will save them. But did you catch how a person receives this gospel? Paul says, what you heard. Saints, do you know that for a person to believe the gospel, you, all of us, we have to spread it? You may say, yeah, I know that, right? But just recount how many times you spread the gospel this week. Think of all the times this week that you could have shared the gospel with someone. Right? I've had plenty. Starbucks, right? I have an excuse, but I think... George said the same thing, I don't want to spit in my drink. <laughs> but that's not an excuse, right? Paul says to the Romans, and how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? Right? Since the only way someone will hear the beautiful message of the gospel is if you share it with someone. And when you do it, right, here's what God's word says about those who spread the good news. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings. Did, did you hear that? No matter what you think about my feet, if I spread the gospel, scripture says my, my feet are beautiful, right? You want beautiful feet? Spread the gospel. Now, the rest of verse 23 reads, which was preached to every preacher under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. When Paul says preach to every preacher, uh, that's a hyperbole. 
You know, because uh, of course we aren't commanded to spread the gospel to animals. And Jesus only died for people. But the point is in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus commands us to preach the gospel to all nations. Again, my slang, every nation. No, not one nation should be left unreached. Man, just think of the most remote place on, on, in the world, most remote place on, on the earth, we are still commanded to reach it, no matter the cost. We should be equally committed to seeing all people saved, right? Amen? Amen. And this is the evidence of a person who has been reconciled by the blood of Christ. That person will in turn be committed to spreading the gospel. Let's go ahead and close it up. So who do you say Jesus is? If you, after the sermon, would ask this question, how would you respond? Would your response sound similar to Paul's? Or even similar to your pastor's? Only your response will matter. Jesus will judge you for what you believe. Jesus is God, saints. Our two points where Jesus is preeminent and Jesus is our Savior. Jesus being preeminent qualifies him to be our Savior. As I spoke earlier on the Jehovah's Witnesses, they love to go to verse 15 to try to prove that Jesus isn't God. Well, from what we just studied, we go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to praise Jesus for being preeminent, right? For him being God. And if you leave here today and you, don't, you haven't got anything else, if you just remember these two things, I'll consider a success. One, Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal. No beginning and no end. And Jesus is the only Savior. And those who put their trust in him and him alone will be saved. This is who Jesus is. I'll close with this, um, this statement on Christology from the living air ministry. This is what it says. We confess the mystery and the wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and make all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied the wrath of God. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen.